1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. And I'm looking forward to our conversation with today's guest, Mark Milkey. Mark is a public policy analyst, keynote speaker, columnist, author of six books and dozens of studies published across Canada and internationally in the last two decades. We'll be discussing his book, The Victim Cult, How the Grievance Culture Hurts Everyone and Rex Civilizations, and much, much more today. Mark Milkey, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thanks for having me on, Chris. It's great to be here.
1: Thanks for your time. We appreciate it, especially on a snowy day in Calgary, as you mentioned. So, Mark, before we start, I mentioned that you're a public policy expert, columnist, and author of six books. Fill in the blanks for us here. I just want to become a public policy expert.
2: (laughs) Well, you start with an advocacy group on taxation, apparently, which was the start of my career, and try and talk some sense to politicians on issues of tax. And then you move on from there to do public policy work and uh, did a PhD and, and looked at kind of, um, you know, the uh, political science, uh, you know, dynamics of all that, of, of how governments work and how they don't work. And and basically, though, I was all, I've always had an intuitive grasp, I guess, of what makes sense for governments to do and what makes sense for them not to do. And I'd say there's a lot more in the latter category than in the former category. So that's where I come from. And as well, perhaps this is relevant to Ukraine today, uh, I've always had this dis you know, dislike for bullies, not that many people like them, but just um I think part of the problem in human history is concentrated power, and of course, the American founding was all about pushing back against the bully of King George the Third, and uh George Washington saying, "Look, we don't want to replicate if I may be that you know flippant." don't want to replicate uh, the problem of, of tyrannies around the world. And in history, uh, we need we need separation of powers, which is why you have Senate and House of Representatives and the White House and so on and so forth. So I think Americans get this in spades that uh, concentrated power is dangerous. And that's been a driving force beyond uh, behind my career is to say to the world, look, you do not want to give all power to one man, to one individual, that ends really, really badly, as we're seeing now in the Ukraine, because of Russia.
1: You mentioned it's very timely. We're talking today, our conversation, the topic of your book, The Victim Cult, How the Grievance Culture Hurts Everyone in Wrecked Civilizations. You know, Russian propaganda often uses a victim-blaming strategy to justify their government's actions. Why do Russia and Vladimir Putin play the victim card so often when they're considered to be among the world's superpowers?
2: That's an excellent question. I think, in part, it is this what psychological insecurity, perhaps, on the part of Vladimir Putin. But I can tell you a story that was relayed to me years ago when Stephen Harper, uh, the then conservative prime minister of Canada, was in power and he met Vladimir Putin um, and, and George W. Bush. Uh, apparently uh, you know putin was 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 not happy that his dog was smaller than it was either i think it was bush's dog and so at the next summit uh, guess who showed up with a bigger dog uh, i mean what does that tell you about vladimir putin um, so you know, i i think there is an historic insecurity there uh you know in russia but it doesn't justify uh, it doesn't justify an invasion i mean um, i'm i'm not surprised when tyrants arise in history and they always will but the, the, the lesson of, of the West, uh, the English West, in particular, the United States and all the other English speaking countries, is that we carved our way to peaceful revolu- resolutions among democracies and the more democracies are around the world uh, who play you know, by those rules are obviously far preferable to uh, one man autocracies such as Russia, where even Russians who oppose this war can't do anything about it, really, unless they want to take their own safety into their hands. So I think, look, I just think there's an historic Russian insecurity there. And it's too bad because it's not like Ukraine or what Poland or Latvia was going to invade Moscow anytime soon. And Germany was pretty pacifist until about the last week right, ever since the Second World War. And now all of a sudden, they're willing to arm up again. Uh, I mean, look what Russia has just provoked, given its actions over the last two weeks. So uh, it's it's unfortunate, to say the least. And it has a lot to do, again, with the domestic political system, which has always encouraged strongmen in, in Russia. It's unfortunate, to say the least.
1: Yeah, you talk about Putin and him having a, a smaller dog. I just remember the famous picture of him riding uh, a horse without a shirt on. And so that sort of sums that, that personality, exactly. I guess. Yeah. The tough guy, right? Got to be exactly. the tough guy. Yeah. Exactly. So to that point, what does Putin's victimhood stance say about him and culture? Is Putin afraid of his own mortality, America's superior economy, military, Russia's weakness or something else?
2: Well, in the victim cult, I don't really get into personal psychology for the most part, right? I try and avoid that and instead look at what happens when you have this dynamic in a society. I mean, Germany had this victim culture long before, by the way, before the Nazis arose. As I write about in the victim cult in one of the longest chapters, Germans thought of themselves as victims uh, in part because they were. They were victims of the French in the late 18th century. France had invaded some German lands in the South and West. And uh, as always happens in wars, there were some awful things that that transpired as a result of that from the French vis-a-vis the, the, the victimized Germans. Nonetheless, after the Germans kicked out the French from, from German lands in the early 1800s, they still saw, thought of themselves as victims. And so they tried to restore an empire, basically, looking back six centuries, based on Frederick the Great. And, uh, and they, they got into this notion of cultural purity. And Vladimir Putin uh, is doing much the same thing, I think, today. What does it mean to be a true Russian, right? And it's this identity that you're trying to recreate. The problem with that is often these, these romanticized identities and looking back centuries lead you to a position where you exclude a lot of people. It's not like a modern democracy like the United States, where it's always been, look, you know, the, the land of opportunity, the Statue of Liberty, right? Uh, bring your poor, your you know, uh, the rest of it. It's not that. It's instead a very defensive mentality, a very, and it is based on a victim narrative. We've, we've been a victim in the past, therefore, we need to defend ourselves. Again, even though it's not like Ukraine or Latvia was going to invade anytime soon, or even Germany. So uh, I, th- I think this victim culture, which Vladimir Putin and, and some Russians are a part of, is, is uh, just another example in history where that's very dangerous to hold on to some grievance culture. Uh, and Vladimir Putin has had this grievance since the fall of the Soviet Union, right? Thinks that that was a mistake, um, that, uh, that that shouldn't have happened, that somehow NATO, a, defense, NATO, a defensive alliance is somehow uh, a danger to Russia when it has been a defensive alliance, and still is as of today. Uh, if that changes, it'll be due to, due to uh, the actions of Vladimir Putin in the last couple of weeks. So we've got
1: the victim Putin on one side. <clears throat> Excuse me, on the other hand, Ukrainian President Zelensky is quite the opposite, even though his country's obviously been invaded. Zelensky has pledged to fight back rather than being a victim. What can we learn from his attitudes?
2: Well, that's something else I profile in the victim cult. When people are victimized, and I don't, I don't downplay that in history or now, there are real tragedies that take place from wars, from natural events, from personal circumstances. Um, but when a, when a person or, or a group is victimized, there's nothing wrong with pushing back. Um, that's the lesson to be learned from history as well. I give, I give an example of early Asian Americans who first arrived on the, the Pacific shores in around 1850, or at least Chinese immigrants did, uh, for the California gold rush. Uh, Now, initially, they were welcomed, you know, a bit of a curiosity um, and hard workers. They came from a very entrepreneurial part of China. But the more Chinese that arrived, some prejudices began to arise. Uh, But the Chinese, you know, as much as they could, as, as, you know, New immigrants to a country, not always knowing the language. Over time, they began to push back where they possibly could. There's a famous letter in, uh, I think it was like 1855, if I recall, to Governor John Engler of California from a Chinese immigrant in response to Engler's accusation or argument that America was just for white folks, uh, white people only. And he said, well, you know, and he he quoted the Bill of the Constitution back to the governor of California and said, this is false and extreme, and you know it. And he was very articulate. Um, so he pushed forward for uh, his community uh, chinese arrivals to the united states and i think what you see in ukraine is the same thing um, of course when you're attacked most often you you will fight back and and uh, one wishes them godspeed and the president of ukraine godspeed on this i mean it's it's a it's a tough hill to climb i, I don't pretend to be a military expert and and have any have any crystal balls on what's going to happen there but i think you know we learned this from the 1930s Uh, While not every situation is akin to what happened uh, vis-a-vis Czechoslovakia, Nazi Germany, and Poland later on, it's it's fairly obvious to me, uh, and I think any observer, that Vladimir Putin has been playing a bit of that early 1930s, mid-1930s card where he takes a bite of Georgia, takes a bite of Ukraine some years ago, is back in Ukraine now because he thinks he can get away with it. Um, Nobody wants another – well, nobody wants – um, more war in addition to what's already started in Ukraine, but and I don't have any advice here. I don't pretend to be an expert on this, but I, I do think it it has strange, eerily uh, some eerie parallels to the 1930s, and I think Ukraine is of course right to fight back, and I hope I hope they can inflict maximum damage um, on on the Russians uh, because. Because without that, I think Vladimir Putin, without a very bloodied nose, will draw the wrong lesson as he has from, well, maybe he drew the right lesson from past weaknesses, but um, he will draw the wrong lesson if he's not stopped now.
1: Your earlier point, victimhood goes back centuries, including, including Native Canadians and the African slave trade and slavery in America. Why is it important to acknowledge past grievances and victimization?
2: Well, um, Again, there in the history of the world, as I when I give a speech on on the book on the victim cult, I often ask people, "How many people do you think have been alive in the history of the world?" And the number is something like one hundred thirteen billion, uh, according to one source. And of course, there's what seven and a half or eight billion of us now alive on the planet. And you're going to have tragedies. You're going to We're going to bump into each other. You know, is the mildest way to put it. Even unintentionally, tragedies will will be created, right? Uh, because of us bumping into each other is almost eight billion people on the planet, and then you add to it natural tragedies, and then you add to it uh, deliberate tragedies created by others, i.e., you know the the situation in Ukraine being the latest example of an aggressive action by an autocratic state. Well, um, there's no shortage of tragedies in history, so I think we should take people, you know, seriously at least at first glance if they claim to be victims, the danger though, is if they get stuck there um, or if their, their society gets stuck there. Uh, So that's, you know, that's, that's dangerous. I mentioned the example of Germans a moment ago. Um, The same thing has happened, um, you know, on American campuses now. And in the victim cult, I go from mild to moderate to murderous examples of, of victim cults. I mean, look, on, on, on a campus like Yale in 2015, some students thought they were victims because somebody else might wear a Halloween costume that was of their own ethnicity, and uh, some of them, uh, you know, uh, responded badly to an email from a professor on campus at that time. He said, "Look, unlike the administration, I trust you uh, to, to do the right thing vis-a-vis costumes. You're all grown-ups." Um, this person, uh, Professor Christakis, was her name. Um, you know, was, was trying to say, look, you're all, you're all adults, I trust you. We, we don't need to have this, you know, oversensitivity uh, that that the administration seems to be pushing. Well, there was blowback. A thousand, you know, a thousand students actually later marched on the home of the president of Yale at that point. Or later, you know, a, a week or two later, I think it was, um, because they they felt victimized by the potential that what, someone from another culture might wear their culture's costume? I mean, how, or, you know, on, on behalf of someone else, they felt victimized. I mean, we're talking about Yale. You graduate from Yale, your salary will be in six figures pretty quickly. You'll have a pretty comfortable life, and yet students there were were uh, upset and crying and confronted the professor's husband, Nicholas Christakis, on campus. Uh, to me, this was a perfect example of the absurdity to which mild victim cults have, have have arisen, even in a liberal democracy like the United States, where you know people need some perspective. You know, twenty-somethings need some perspective. I mean, in history of the world, most people were abused and victimized and lived in an awful state, and life was nasty, brutish, and short, you know, as the philosopher Hobbes points out for most people in most of human history. But you're sitting in Yale in 2015, in one of the most successful nations in the history of the planet, the United States of America and all you can focus on is Halloween costumes and microaggressions. I mean, are you kidding me? Now that's a mild example, but to me, it's symbolic or um, it's emblematic of the problem where people are not serious these days. I mean, we just got a lesson in the last two weeks of what it's like to be really victimized uh, in Ukraine. And there's, there are examples of that in history. So I wouldn't dismiss those, but I think we have to parse through those, especially these days. I mean, let's go to a current issue in the United States, reparations for slavery. Well, I think there is sense in reparations, as I write in the Victim Cult. It's an art, not a science, though. So Quakers released their slaves in the late in the late 18th century, in the 1780s. They pay reparations to their slaves because, as devout Christians, obviously Quakers, they 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 had come to realize that slavery was a great evil, and they were early adopters, so to speak, of abolition. Uh, and they did compensate their slaves. That was the right thing to do. Now. Um, over 150 years later, after slavery was abolished in the United States in 1865, um, at the end of the Civil War, practically, and before that, with the with the emancipation that that Abraham Lincoln announced, does it make sense to compensate? I would argue not, because I would argue present day. Um, you know, your, your present day economic status or employment status, your incomes, all of that has a lot more to do with what's happened in the last couple of decades and choices made by individuals and families and communities. It doesn't make sense actually to blame present day conditions on slavery uh, that ended practically in 1865. And of course, there was other discrimination since. But as a direct link to slavery, no, I don't think that works. So in the victim cult, what I try and do is describe where it makes sense to compensate um, You know, shortly after an event or you know, even, even years after. It made sense to compensate Japanese Americans for being put in internment camps during World War II and in some cases, many cases, having their property stolen by government and never returned. It made sense to compensate them five, 10 years later, even 20 and 30 years later because their you know their their life was affected by this but i think as time goes on uh, i don't think you can you can simply you know, have a kind of a blank slate and say, everything today is due to something that happened 50 years ago or 150 years ago, the further you go back, the more problematic that argument for reparations becomes in, in my, uh, you know, as I point out, in the victim cult. So, But you, you start by acknowledging where there has been some victimization and tragedy and evil. Uh, but then I think you have to do the hard work of figuring out, you know, okay, what's causing today's problems, though? It may or may not be what people claim.
1: So your point about clawing back for 50 or 150 years ago, what negative effects occur for an individual group when they choose to play that victim card, such as when they dredge up those past tragedies, you know, especially for monetary Mm -hmm. political gain?
2: Well, let's go back to, um, well, the tragedy, I guess, is that you're not looking at real cause and effect, right? If you say, look, everything's due to slavery. Right. If you look at the difference between, say, black American incomes on average and white American incomes and Asian American incomes, and you say, well, everything is due to slavery or prejudice. Really, are you sure about that? Because when you do the the apple to apple comparisons as economist Thomas Sowell has done, and I I quote him in the victim cult, you will find that black American couples with a university education, I think Sowell points out it was what, by the mid 1980s that they already earned the same as white Americans. And of course, Asian Americans have earned far more than other Americans on average, but also when you do apple to apple comparisons uh, for some time now. Uh, So you need to look at other factors. This is something, by the way, that some of the Black Lives Matter authors, um, such as Ibrahim X. Kendi, do not do redefine racism to say any difference in outcomes between groups and the stats and the statistics must be due to racism, and if you disagree with that you 're racist, so they shut down conversation it 's kind of a circuit or loop right? it 's not terribly logical, but it works well for intimidating people, I guess, but the problem with that argument is then you say, all right, cultural choices don 't matter i mean I was on an, uh, I was talking about the victim cult to uh, another fellow last week on this, and uh, his family is from St. Thomas. And you know his family doesn't share the cultural presuppositions of say someone that you know uh, you know maybe grew up in America. Um, you know it's a very different sort of cultural you know assumption in terms of what what leads to success. So he doesn't feel like a victim at all, and he despises victim culture, even though his skin color is the same as Jesse Jackson or, or Abraham Kennedy. Um, so culture matters. Uh, parent, you know your parents matter. If they don't read to you when you're a kid, uh, family dynamics matter. Education matters. The reason East Indian Americans have the greatest or the highest income of, of all cohorts when you look at US Census data is because they also have the highest education levels. And the same thing with those whose family origins are Taiwan. So these other things matter. And 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 the danger is when you when you play the victim card, and especially on behalf of your community, as some irresponsible leaders do, you're not going to look at what's really going to solve the problem education, prosperity, entrepreneurship, that sort of thing, reading to your kids when they're 10 years old, getting them interested in reading and getting them away from the video games or whatever else they're doing. So that matters. And if you don't look at that and you just say, well, we're a victim of your tribe. My my tribe has been a victim of your tribe. And it's as simple as that. Okay. You're not going to solve any problems that way in in most cases.
1: When it comes to individuals and various groups and cultures, there are one-time victimizations, but it's also chronic victimization. Where does chronic victimization originate from, and why does it seem so prevalent, probably even more so than ever today?
2: Hmm. Well, the notion of chronic victimization, um, which is not the same thing as actually being victimized, so I'd argue. I, I think maybe it comes from a society you know, in the English-speaking world that's become fat and lazy. Um, we've never had it so good relative to most societies in history. Right, we live longer. We have more choices, um, at least in, in democratic countries. Right, um, whether you can consider yourself conservative or liberal, and when I say liberal democratic, I mean the classic freedoms that that grew up, um, you know, in in the English speaking world. Right, the right to property, uh, you know, the right to you know worship the you know in, in the way that you choose, uh, freedom of the the press, freedom of expression. Right, your constitutional rights in the United States, enunciated in your Bill of Rights and elsewhere. Um, In a democracy, to complain that one is victimized, you have options. You can go to court and you can sue someone if you've really been victimized. Uh, And certainly there's no shortage of victimization in American history or in any other country's history. I mean, Black Americans were right to push for for civil rights, which they had been denied until the 1960s, you know, on the ground. Uh, Despite that, you see again this pushback, though, from Black Americans and Asian Americans, others, who said we're not going to wait for the rest of the country to catch up to where we should be in terms of our civil rights. So Asian-Americans early on, I mean, one of the chapters in the victim cults, in the victim cult, um, which was encouraging when I looked at the the data, is about how Asian-Americans, how their kids were succeeding already by the 1920s and the 1930s. And and very briefly, Chris, what it was, was I found data that showed in 1910, if you're the child of uh, a Chinese-American or Japanese-American, You're attending high school and then later graduating from college at a rate slightly below white Americans. But by 1920 and by 1930, the kids of Asian Americans are attending high school and also graduating from college at rates much higher than white Americans. And this is the most discriminatory period in American history. And yet, you know, parents are saying to their kids, despite what's happening out there, Don't blame your life on structural racism, even though it was true in that era. It's not now, but in that era, there was was structural racism, structural discrimination, right? Jews and Chinese and Japanese Americans, you know, faced barriers that white Americans didn't. But nonetheless, Asian Americans said, we're not going to allow you, I guess, to their kids, to play the victim card, you're going to succeed. You're going to be an entrepreneur. Now, some of this was almost forced. Some Asian Americans were not allowed into certain professions, and so they became very entrepreneurial. As a result, they had to be. Um, but also, they educated their kids, and this led later on to what is now a cliche: right, the, the rise of what I call the Pacific class, where they just they they score far higher on college tests, and, and they graduate, and they they get college degrees at much higher rates than other Americans. So. Uh, and then they succeed financially in every other way, at least on average, but even the Apple to Apple comparisons, the same thing. So uh, you do see that. And I think this is, again, a pushback to the notion of chronic victimization, that, that some want to peddle on behalf of their community, and they're doing their community no favor when they do so, whether it's you know, Abraham Kendi or, or others.
1: You just talked about structural discrimination. An aspect of victimization is the blame game. What role does blame game have in the promotion of victimhood?
2: Well, it's pretty deep in human nature. One of the stories they tell right off the bat in the victim cult is the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. So most of your viewers will know Adam and Eve, right? I mean, the story is, you know, God plants Adam and Eve in the the garden and uh, in this paradise. And he says, the only thing you have to not do is uh, pick from the the tree of the fruit and the fruit of good and evil. Uh, Of course they do. Uh, Like any 14 year old, you just, you know, you're told not to do something, you do it. And so, uh, but what happens after that when they're caught, when God, you know, comes along and walks in the garden and says, okay, what did you do? Well, Eve blames the snake that tempted her to pick the fruit, Adam blames Eve. In fact, Adam even blames God and says, well, you gave the woman to me. I mean, so this blame game seems endemic to human nature. And, um, you know, same thing with Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, where, and this is on the murderous example I give, this narrative, the Genesis creation narrative, what do we, what do we glean from this? The traditional sunny school lesson is Cain and Abel give sacrifices to God. Cain's sacrifice is rejected. He becomes mad. He becomes bitter. Cain gives vegetables. Abel had given meat. You know, that's, that's the, that's the protocol, I guess. But, you know, does Cain know this? I don't know. Um, but in any event, he gets bitter, he gets mad. And rather than confront the source of his woes, God, as other Old Testament figures actually do once in a while, they argue with God, you know, um, Cain doesn't do this. He looks around and looks looks for someone to blame. And it's his brother. And he's jealous of his brother. And he murders his brother. And then God comes along, walks in the garden, and says, where is your brother? And you can almost see the sneer on Cain's face. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, you are. And you've just murdered him. And the lesson to me, actually, from this story is that Cain is like the victims we know. He doesn't accept responsibility. He doesn't look at his, how his own actions potentially contributed to this, this, uh, this tragedy. Instead, he, he looks for someone else to blame. And in this case, it's his brother, brother who ends up murdered uh, by Cain. And that's the tragedy. When you start blaming others, you start to take the focus off what perhaps you may have contributed to uh, an ongoing tragedy.
1: We've been talking to Mark Milkey. we will be right back after a short break become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america you have the power to be stronger live fearlessly and enjoy the benefits of a great life listen for fearlessly authentic with host jody harrison bauer jody has proven at an age when many start to slow down that she is just getting started With two grown daughters, a successful business that she started at 50, a finalist in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue, and a two-time World Bikini Champion, she's ready to take you to the next level in your life. Fearlessly Authentic airs Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment.
0: Are you looking for a refreshing, common-sense approach to business, legal issues, women's rights, racial justice, and entrepreneurship? Be sure to tune in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Carlos features guest experts from the fields of law, business, and entrepreneurship, as well as politics, government, and education to bring an insightful and well-rounded conversation to you. Getting Common can be heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. listening to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: We're back with Mark Milkey, public policy analyst, keynote speaker, columnist, and author of six books and dozens of studies published across Canada and internationally in the last two decades. And as we've been talking about, he's the author of The Victim Cult, How the Grievance Culture Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilizations. Before the break, we were talking about the different types of tyrants and what motivates them. Are all tyrannies the same? And if not, what are the differences?
2: Well, there was a great analysis by the UN ambassador, Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, before she became UN ambassador, appointed by Ronald Reagan. I think she was appointed in 1980. She'd written a terrific essay in 1979, pointing out there were basically two types of dictators. One was like a traditional autocrat, right? They want money. Uh, They'll repress their populations to get it, right? They're corrupt. So you think of Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti, Uh, but then you have ideological tyrants, Uh, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler believes in pure race theory, right? It's anti-scientific, pseudoscientific nonsense, but it's got an ideological vision, a pure vision uh, of what the world should look like. Uh, And the same thing with Joseph Stalin and Marxists in the 20th century. They had this ideological vision that uh, to abolish classes and and, uh, that everything could be organized from the top down, so to speak, economically. That becomes very dangerous because if you're in the way of their pure vision, and most people usually are, you can be ruled over. I mean, Ukraine's in the news again, you know, this month. Uh, In the 1930s, Joseph Stalin um, ran over Ukraine, basically, and... and, uh, you know, enacted a forced famine because they they didn't want to be collectivized. They didn't want their farms to be taken over by the state and run by the state. And so Joseph Stalin uh, basically starved them uh, into submission and killed them, uh, murdered you know millions of Ukrainians. Um, so this is the danger with ideological tyrants. Now there's there's a more recent analysis uh, in addition to Gene Kirkpatrick's excellent 1979 essay, which you can find online. There's a book by a fellow I know at the University of uh, Carlton in Ottawa here in Canada, and he posits basically three types of tyrants. So one is the ideological tyrant that I've mentioned, one is a traditional tyrant, uh, but there's also kind of middling person, which may be Vladimir Putin, where they, they do have some concern for their country. You know, this is Julius Caesar, or it's, it is. Uh, perhaps Vladimir Putin, where he's not ideological, but he has a vision of, in in Putin's case, of a a greater Russia. And he thinks he's doing the right thing for the Russian people. Now, the rest of us can disagree, including many Russians, perhaps, Uh, but he thinks he's helping Russia. And it's not totally about uh, corruption. He may be corrupt. Uh, We know that Vladimir Putin is. Uh, but he's not like an ideological tyant, uh, uh, tyrant like Stalin or Hitler. Instead, he actually thinks, and in some cases, he may be doing some good, or traditional autocrats uh, that care for their people put up a, you know, a coliseum in the case of a Roman, you know, uh, Caesar, or, you know, they build highways, um, you know, and they, they might care for the poor, um, you know but they're not ideological they're not like chairman mao they're not like chairman uh, they're not like adolf hitler or joseph stalin but that makes them even more dangerous because part of the population may be sympathetic to them and i think that's the case of vladimir putin where you know some russians take pride and you know P- Putin pushing back uh, against the West as opposed to a different you know vision which was Catherine the Great in Russia, which was no you know we need to modernize and westernize uh Vladimir Putin's a throwback to the other tradition where you know we want a greater Russia, and uh that's unfortunate but he's he's as Waller newell the the author of this book tyrants uh, points out you know um, there's that second type of tyrant which is uh not not it's not just about the corruption and he's not ideological. But he's this middling tyrant, which has some concern for his people, however twisted. Um, and that's the danger because you know, they, may, they may admire him because of that.
1: So as you talk about and analyze these tyrants, you said that evil never shows up the same way twice. Mm. Can
2: you elaborate on what that means, please? Sure. It's always occurred to me, for example, that when the political left um, is so concerned about fascism, I mean, they literally expect that we're going to see someone with a mustache arise again in jackboots, in jackboots, um, with brown shirts marching on the street and burning books. Um, it's always seemed to me that the last tragedy or the last evil always burns us since we're always on the lookout for that. So very few people will be taken in by a repeat of what happened the last time. Instead, what you have to worry about is the same evil arising under new justifications. And, um, I think we're seeing this with the repression of free expression in the English world, where people who think they're righteous, um, you know, and and have a deep concern, uh, the woke crowd who, who don't like nasty talk, I guess, uh, and, and who really does, except for a jerk, but, you know, nasty speech. I mean, who, you know, nobody likes to be, you know, um, put down. Nobody likes to be made fun of or whatever. No one likes to be persecuted because of who they are. All right. I mean, we can all agree on that. But the problem with the woke movement today, it seems to me, is that they go a step further and they see almost any debate about uh, an issue uh, and anybody's feelings um, you know, that might be heard in an honest debate about cause and effect as akin to, I don't know, hate speech. Um, And and we have far fewer protections, by the way, for free expression in Canada than you do in the United States. Uh, Your First Amendment rights, I think it is, um, if I remember your your amendments properly, uh, really are are, are pretty robust, Uh, your free expression rights. uh, That's not the same in Canada. But the woke movement, you know by um by not recognizing that a core value that has taken centuries to get to an English speaking world is free expression is injuring it because they don't understand their own self righteousness and their own paranoia uh, about hurting people um even with words has led them to really try and repress speech in the universities and in some cases in the media and so or in politics or in business and I find that really unfortunate now that's you know it's not the same as murder. Um, but look, there was a case in Ontario, for example, where uh, there was a suggestion that they were going to burn some books, uh, some Canadian history books, because they they might have portrayed Indigenous Canadians in the wrong way. And I thought, holy crapola, um, we're burning books again? Like, what is this? And now they got they got shut down pretty quickly for that you know that atrocious idea. But this is what I mean: old evils never show up the same way twice. They they show up under, you know, often from well-intentioned people. I mean, you talk to any ideologue, they all think they know how to run the world, right? Um, and that the rest of us should listen to them. And if we disagree, again, we're in the way, you know, and they'll find some tractor to run over us, either metaphorically or, or you know, in, in reality. And that's the danger.
1: So I want to go back to a word you used at the beginning of the show, and that's bullying. You know, a few moments ago, you are talking about the different types of, of tyrannies, but one common denominator among all tyrants is being a bully. How can people smartly push back from a tyrannical bully? And by that, I mean, you know, let's take it from the macro level of Vladimir Putin right. all the way down to the everyday workplace where some of us are forced to deal with our own little bullies.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, in the victim cult, I give examples, as I mentioned, in the last couple of chapters. And there's no shortage of Americans who throughout history have pushed back against bullets, right? The abolitionist movement was just that pushback against slave owners in the south and, and the pushback you know the pushback it's a mild way to describe the civil war um, but there, there's no shortage of examples in american history of pushing back against bullies and rightly so uh, starting with the founding of, of the american republic in 1776 pushing back against king george um, look i i would say you know the personally how do you do this and, and corporately how do you do this it's again, not an art it's it's an art, not a science. so um, I think first of all, you have to identify what can be done, and you need allies i mean let's let's think about this in a war context, right? I'm also president of the local Winston Churchill Society, and I think about how Churchill approached war uh, before your country got in in, in nineteen forty one after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Churchill comes becomes prime minister in may nineteen thirty nine What does he do? he doesn 't invade Europe right away he couldn 't he didn 't have the troops right he didn 't have the allies so what do you, what do you do well you, you you try and find some successes where you can. What does Winston Churchill do early on after becoming prime Minister? The French fleet is in the hands of of the provisional government um, you know and um, not yet in the hands of Nazi Germany and he says, "Look, you have to sail your your fleet to us in Great Britain. You have to leave French ports lest it be taken over." Uh, by by the Germans, right? He didn't trust Vichy France to uh, to do the right thing there. Um, now they didn't. They didn't sail. So eventually Churchill gives the order to sink the French fleet. That's an early victory. It's a one off. But sometimes you you know uh, you, you push back with these one off victories, and then you you do what? You begin to think ahead, medium and long term. You build alliances. You make sure your factories are up and running. Uh, literally, in the case of World War II, and and then you you do what you can to cajole. Uh, uh, you know, President Roosevelt to get into war, supply you. And then, of course, long-term, you think about the Manhattan Project, right, after America enters the war. So short, medium, and long-term strategies for pushing back. I think it's the same thing personally uh, as it is in a war situation. Um, Asian american in, again, 1894, there's this wonderful story of Wong Kim Ark, if I've got the name correct uh, correctly, and I think I do, of this uh, Chinese-American born in the United States. His ancestry is Chinese. He goes to visit his parents in China, comes back to San Francisco, is denied entry because he's Chinese. And he says, listen, I have the right as an American citizen to come back. There's, they, they don't allow people to become naturalized citizens at this point of Asian ancestry. But they, there's no question he's an American citizen. He goes to court. He pushes back. He actually wins at the Supreme Court level, which says, yes, you're an American citizen. Now, that's a one-off victory. Discrimination, institutional discrimination endures really until about 1950, I'd say, in the case of Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans. Actually, 1944, when some discriminatory laws were lifted during World War II, because China's an ally. Um, But uh, that's a one-off victory. Nonetheless, the community pushes back for for decades after that until they get their full civil rights, as they were right to do. So again, there's no easy answer here. I, I don't pretend to be Tony Robbins in the victim cult, you know. Due respect, you know, there's no one, two, three remedy to to some of these deep problems. But I think the first thing is to yes, if you've been. If you have been victimized, um, don't think like one. Do push back where you can and think short, medium and long term, rather than dwelling on the grievance culture. Because one of the dangers I point out to, I point out in the victim cult, another horrific example is Rwanda. And Some of your viewers will be familiar, listeners will be familiar with Rwanda and what happened there, the genocide. That genocide didn't, didn't occur out of nowhere. It occurred because after independence, well before independence, the Tutsis, who were like five to eight percent of Rwanda's population, were apparently favored by the colonialist powers, the Germans and the Belgians. Um, but they they were all always successful as well. They were ranchers where most of the population were farmers, and that made for an income difference. Well, there was jealousy, and they were in leadership roles, the Tutsis were for, for much of the pre-independence era. Once Rwanda becomes independent in 1960, the majority of the population, the Hutus, Um, has had this grievance narrative for a very long time, but they begin to make it official. It becomes part of state propaganda in the schools, in the media, in the education system, literally for over three decades. And Tutsis are persecuted, told to stay away from politics or they will be shot, they will be murdered. Um, And and there's there's many genocides uh, before the 1994 massacre, which killed almost a million Rwandans, most of them Tutsi. Um, This narrative though, had been pushed by the Tutsis or by the Hutu for over three decades. Um, And it it became, it became dangerous. And, and literally think about this, the majority population, 80, 85% of the population thinks it's a victim of a tiny minority. This is like Adolf Hitler and the Germans thinking they're victims of a tiny minority, the Jews. Uh, Nonetheless, a good chunk of the population believes this and it takes a spark to light this fire, this genocide in 1994, and uh, there 's a tragedy the planes uh, president 's plane crashes it's it 's blamed on the Tutsis and the genocide starts and, and six weeks later, a million Rwandans are dead and This is the danger of dwelling in a, in a grievance narrative forever i mean this is a very serious um, this is a very serious project to embark on to to tell your population for decades as adolf Hitler well as Germans did before Adolf Hitler and the Rwandans did under the under, under Hutu rule. That, that they were victims of the Tutsis. It's a very dangerous path to trot. And sometimes in human history, um, things do not end well.
1: There have been a number of stories about pressure being put on Russian oligarchs as a way to get Putin to change his behavior. I think yesterday I saw the Italian government seizing properties. Does this speak to the
2: fact that bullies don't operate in a vacuum? You know, that they can't really bully others without enablers? I think so. And I'm encouraged by the actions of the Italian government in Europe. I mean, for years, I didn't I didn't think Europe had a backbone. Um, and look nobody wants to get into war so this is an art again not a science i'm familiar with the writings of henry kissinger and you know most famous realist at least in the political realm um, most famous realist in american history and realists will tell you that uh, you know it's it's a mistake to simply take a moral precept like everyone should be free and then and then uh, go to the wall for that so ronald reagan for example understood in the 1980s even though he was accused of being a cowboy, he was not reckless, right? He didn't. He didn't say to his own troops, to American troops or to NATO troops, "We're going to cross the border from East or West Berlin into East Berlin, or you know, from you know, NATO NATO countries into Central and Eastern Europe." He didn't. He didn't move the borders. That would have probably would have been a reckless thing, uh, and you know, would have ended in tragedy. Would have ended in World War Three. So, I think there is a case to be made for realism in in politics and in war. Uh, nonetheless, I think given what Vladimir Putin has done over the last dozen years or so, that I think we're overdue for drawing a line and pushing back in a way that at this point, anyway, uh, does put pain you know, on the people who are there in Russia, especially the oligarchs and others, who there's no question they got rich because of their connections to Vladimir Putin and by bowing to the regime. And if they can be made to feel the pain... Maybe this is one way to draw a line without engaging in a full-scale war with Russia, which you know I don't think a lot of people would want. I, but I don't know if we're in 1932 or 1939. Um, I, I hope neither. So I, I hope this pain inflicted on, on some of the Russian population, especially those in positions of power and influence and money, um, will make the difference. And somehow maybe this can be ratcheted down, um, not peacefully, it's already not peaceful, but ratcheted down in a way that puts Putin in a box because maybe if Europeans and, and Americans and us Canadians had, and the British had put Adolf Hitler in a box around 1934, or 1936, or 1937, maybe we never would have had the Second World War. Uh, I mean, this is counterfactual history. You never know. But um, it seems to me that, that a line needs to be drawn somehow. And I'm, I'm encouraged, actually, that Europeans are drawing it, including Germans who until yesterday basically seemed to be doing all they could to be dependent on Russia, right? Uh, Killing their own coal and nuclear plants and asking Russia to to send all the natural gas and oil they could. I mean, think about a a perverse strategy uh, for encouraging tyrannical actions by an autocrat. I I mean, I I was just amazed at the naivety of of Europeans, Uh, but they do seem to be pushing back finally.
1: I'd like to circle back to the grievance culture for a minute. How can we respect others' opinions yet change this current grievous culture so we have
2: constructive outcomes? Well, again, maybe ask questions. I'm not good at asking questions. I'm not very Socratic. (laughs) I'm very opinionated and I write books. So, you know, I guess I think I have all the answers um, or at least some of the answers. But but I guess in conversation daily, the thing to, to do is to ask people, are you really sure? So, and have a a sense of curiosity and ask others to have a sense of curiosity. So when Abraham Kendi and others say, listen, all the differences between Black Americans, white Americans on on statistics and on outcomes are due to racism. Ask, really? Are you sure that culture doesn't matter? Are you sure that it doesn't matter whether your family is from St. Thomas originally or has grown up with a grievance narrative in, I don't know, the Bronx or the South? Um, Are you sure that education doesn't matter to these outcomes, um, and on and on. So, maybe be Socratic and ask questions of people who are pretty determined that they have a one, really a mono causal explanation. Um, but also, maybe try and remind people of history in, in whatever way we can that to dwell on a grievance narrative, it doesn't matter whether it's Cain and Abel. Or the Germans in 1815, who dwell in this for a century and, and more before Adolf Hitler comes along and bathe themselves in victim thinking. I mean, it wasn't just Jews that that Germans in the 19th century thought they were victimized by. I mean, Germans thought they were victimized by anyone who was English, right? You, me, our ancestors. Um, I mean, my ancestry is German, but I mean, they, they they literally thought they were victimized by English liberalism, right? Free markets, free enterprise you know, rights of the individual. Germans are very collectivist in the 19th century, uh, which is another reason why it ended so badly in 1933 to 1945. They were primed for victimization and collectivization. So maybe draw people's attention to this notion that, listen, if you're actually victimized, if you actually think that, then let's discuss this. Uh, And if you actually are, well, you have the option of pushing back in American courts. Um, You can change laws if you think they're, I don't see any discriminatory laws against, minorities in the United States these days, I see affirmative action policies which are designed to make up for past wrongs, um, wrong-headed as I think those are because they create new victims as, as individuals. They again look at race instead of in character of uh, of who you are, a la Martin Luther King. Nonetheless, I mean, you can't really argue, I think persuasively today, that America is some sort of deeply racist society. Um, it's It's not 1850. It hasn't been 1850 for you know, a long time. So, and it's not 19... 19- 32 in Alabama. So I think acquaint people with history and the reforms that have happened, and frankly, how people succeed and flourish in in life in in a democracy, it isn't by dwelling on a grievance. I mean, if it's real, deal with it. But I I think people need to be reacquainted with, with, frankly, the progress that has happened in history. Um, I mean, we're still still talking about racism as if this was 1950. Uh, I mean, that's just so wrongheaded. It's hard to know where to, to start. But I think we need to start having that honest conversation. We've talked about
1: past grievances in other countries, and now I'd like to switch to the U.S. and Canada. Why was the United States successful in refraining from playing the victim after winning our freedom from England after the Revolutionary War? And how did that influence who we are or were as Americans for generation after generation?
2: Right. Maybe because you won. <laughs> you know, when you win, <laughs> it's easy not to be a victim, <clears throat> Right. I can tell you that the United Empire loyalists, as they're renowned, right? So all the Brits and Redcoats that were in Boston and New York who were chased up to you know the wilds of what was not even Canada at that point, but this Northern Territory, cold Northern Territory, you know the woods of what would now be Ontario and Quebec and Atlantic Canada, right? North of New Hampshire there and North of New York. I mean, think about um, the victim mentality that was created in the Brits that were chased North. They lost their fortunes in New York and in Boston and elsewhere. I mean they were actually the privileged classes of the day. People forget that. So there is a victim mentality among some Canadians, or at least there was then after, uh, after the loss in 1776. But I think I think the fact that Americans, you know, that the revolutionaries won in 1776, uh, I mean there was no victim culture to really, really dwell in. Weirdly, I mean losers, you know, sometimes rightly but often wrongly, will think of themselves as victims rather again than look at their own actions. One of the things I do in the victim cults, so I look at some of the stories that came out of the American South, pre-Civil War, Southerners already thought of themselves as victims of the North, right? They were, they were mad that the North wasn't upholding its part of the deal to send slaves back who'd escaped the South, and not all states did. Uh, they were mad that that these slaves were allowed to be free in some northern states. So you had this grievance narrative already there in the 1850s. You had a grievance narrative like in 1920. The, the Georgia Bankers Association, as I write about in one chapter, complains about emigration to the north. Black black Southerners leaving for better opportunities in Chicago and New York. And the Georgia, the Georgia Bankers Association is complaining about the loss of cheap labor. They thought of themselves as victims we're talking about the american south which is still pretty, you know, pretty nasty to blacks at this point to say the least. So, um, and yet uh, you know, georgians, the white georgians think of themselves as victims, like there's no perspective there. <laughs> so, i um, i think the americans in general have a pretty healthy ethos. That's why this victim narrative in the case of the united states is to me so unamerican. american i haven't seen it in most of american history. Instead, it's it's more of a can-do entrepreneurial attitude. Uh, that anybody can come here and succeed. You know, I talk to immigrants in Canada, but also the United States, they don't like the victim narrative. They do think it's very un-American. They do think it's a betrayal of, of what they came to your country, and in some cases, my country for, which is a new opportunity, and that's what they want. They don't want to get caught up in this victim narrative, which looks back 200 years, you know, or 50 years even. They want to succeed.
1: We have just a few minutes left. After so many years in your profession... What keeps you interested in your
2: research? Well, I think we talked about bullies look uh, you know if you've ever um, you know if you 've ever known someone has been bullied and you weren 't able to completely help them um, you know in my life I, you know, there was someone i couldn 't help for a while and later on in life could if if you understand if you if you 've ever been in that dynamic where you 're powerless um, then you know um, i I have a deep uh, I, I deeply despise bullies. Uh, I mean, most people do that That are decent people. But I mean, it drives me because I understand in human history, um, what has driven uh, the tragedies in human history between human beings um, has been not treating others um, as individuals, and that monopolies on power are, are what create tragedy. So, you know, it, it could be... Um, it could be a dictator on the macro level um, or it could be a southern plantation owner, obviously, who has a monopoly on power vis-a-vis, you know, black Americans on his plantation. I mean, you know, or a bully who has power in a schoolyard. Right. Uh, I mean, there, there's some sort of monopoly on power or force. And that's the tragedy of human history. And the wonderful thing about the United States of America and your beginning and your ethos is that you said, we're not going to make the mistake of thinking we as human beings are going to be perfect if only you give us all power. It's a bit, you know, that that's always a fallacy. It's a bit like the Lord of the Rings. If only I have the ring of power, all will be well. No, no, <laughs> don't go there. That's a mistake. Uh, that turns you into a bully because you get, you get, uh, you know, conceited, uh, you get full of power and you become arrogant. And so what you of Americans did in, in 1776 and beyond with divided power is exactly right, because you will never then be ruled by a king, by someone who thinks the country belongs to them instead of you. And so you set up your system pretty well to guard against that sort of thinking, or if that sort of thinking arises, to make sure it never uh, actualizes. So look, I think you're on the wrong path. I just think Americans, like everyone else in the speaking world, need to return to this notion of opportunity and freedom and not uh, dwell on Overdwell on, on the wrongs of the past and use them as, as, as excuses not to succeed today.
1: Mark Milkey has been our guest today. You can learn more about Mark and his book, The Victim Cult How the Grievance Culture Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilizations, at www.victimcult.com. I'm Chris Meek. Thanks for your time. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, keep taking your next steps forward.